Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This episode is all about the travels of David Ingram. So there's a new book out by Dean Snow, it just came out this week, called The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram an Elizabethan sailor in native North America. So David Ingram was a sailor who traveled all over the world in the middle of the 16th century and had this amazing adventure up and down the eastern seaboard before there was any English colonizing going on. Um, Really fascinating story. And he helped to contribute to the growing knowledge of the Americas in Elizabethan England. So we're going to talk about him. But before we get started, your reminder about TutorCon. So if you missed the live TutorCon Q&A session that I did on Friday the 24th, I actually put up a recording at englandcast.com slash TutorCon so you can check it out. We talked about all kinds of things, including meals, accessibility options, what's included, if you're vegan, all kinds of stuff, as well as a very special announcement about a speaker that I'm very excited will be making an appearance. So TutorCon this year is September 8th through 10th in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Wonderful three days with all of your new tutor-loving best friends. So go to englandcast.com slash TutorCon to check it out and reserve your spot. So now let's talk about David Ingram. In the fall of 1569, a French trading ship called the Gargerine 
was kind of hanging out off of Cape Breton in what is now Nova Scotia. And its captain heard a ruckus outside. There were three English men in a native canoe begging to come on board. Their names were David Ingram, Richard Brown, and Richard Twight. And they had a wild story. It had all started off but the year before in Mexico, where they were caught up in the Battle of San Juan de Olua. And that was between John Hawkins and Francis Drake, and then Spanish forces under Francisco Lujan. And then Hawkins's ship was damaged. The crew put them on shore across the Gulf of Mexico. And it turns out they all walked all the way up to Nova Scotia. So we're going to talk about that in a second. If this story is true, they were the first Europeans to cross North America. We know David Ingram's story because about a decade later in the 1580s, people in England were getting really excited about the idea of setting up colonies in North America. Adventurers and merchants like Walter Raleigh were trying to get Elizabeth I on board with their plans. And then in the summer of 1582, Elizabeth ordered her main secretary, Francis Walsingham, to question the only English person that had explored parts of North America in person, David Ingram, as part of this group. So there are two ways to look at his story. If you believe the story that was recorded, it marks the end of a very strange and little-known chapter in North American history. But if you're not so sure, it becomes the start of yet another wild and weird story that's even weirder because of how it taps into Elizabethan England's visions of empire and how they would wind up playing out in North America. We do know for sure that Ingram was a real person. Several people said they met him, and there's no reason to think they were making that up. Beyond that, we don't know very much about him except that he was born in Barking in Essex. If he was like other sailors during Elizabethan times, he probably couldn't read or write. And so this means that later, when he gave his story to Walsingham, he didn't write it all down. He just answered questions. All of those questions had a specific purpose that might have been leading him, and he might not have understood that. So also, he was religious, probably Protestant. So his interactions with the people that he met, the indigenous people, were influenced by his own belief system, and he might not have been open to theirs. In fact, he probably was not open to theirs. So there's definitely color and shading as we look at his answers and his story. But even if half of it is made up, it's still fascinating. Compared to the vast majority of Elizabethans, he was well-traveled being a sailor. He saw a lot of the Atlantic coasts of Europe and the Mediterranean and the African and American coasts. But of course, just because his ship stopped and docked at a certain place, it doesn't mean he got off the ship and went exploring. He could have just stayed on the ship. Places like Constantinople, for example, it might have been safer to stay on board because the international relationships were often a little bit, you know, sketchy. So he might have only seen some places from a distance, and he didn't have a lot to compare what he saw in North America to what he'd seen elsewhere. And that can kind of help explain and give some nuance to some of the the more outlandish and wilder things that he claims he saw. He claims that he saw wild creatures like elephants and giant eagles and a beast even bigger than an ox. Some of the illustrations and woodcuts based on his stories show huge human figures with faces on their chests. But also, it turns out that a lot of these descriptions were sort of misunderstandings of what he was talking about. 
But still, his journey was likely mostly true. And there was a lot of detail about the people and the landscape and the wildlife of North America before it was taken over by the European colonizers. So let's talk about his journey. In 1567, he joined up with John Hawkins's third slaving expedition. There were about 400 sailors. They were on six ships and they headed to West Africa for what would have been a horrible, horrible mission, enslaving people and then taking them to the Caribbean to be sold like they were cattle to Spanish colonists. Fighting broke out on September 24th, 1568, and Francis Drake, who was Hawkins's cousin, took off with one of the smaller ships to sort of make an escape. All but one of the remaining ships sank. Half of the crew were either captured or killed. The rest, including Ingram, got away on the ship with Hawkins called the Minion. The problem was, for him, that the ship was very badly damaged, and they had very little food. So Hawkins knew there was no way that he could get all of the men back home to England. So in early October a lot of the men decided that they were going to take their chances on land near modern-day Tampico, about 240 miles north of Veracruz. Hawkins said, we quickly set these 100 men on land in this little place. Most of them gave themselves up to the Spanish colonists right away. But Ingram and about two dozen others decided that they were going to try to head up north and see if they could find French colonists or some English trading ships. Most of them disappeared and never turned up again and were never heard from again, but Ingram, Richard Brown, and Richard Twyde survived. Along the way, he traded with Native people that he met. He knew he started to learn what was valuable to be traded later. He learned about the paths that they had, this whole network of trading routes that went up and down the East Coast and throughout the interior of the country. And that's what he took to go all the way up to Nova Scotia. When you read his story, it often sounds like he's answering questions. There's not a real timeline. He jumps around from describing the people and the plants to the animals that he saw without much of an order. And in some parts, it's hard to tell if he's talking about the South or the North. For example, he describes a cloud that turns into a tempest, probably talking about a tornado, something that is more likely to be seen in sort of the southern, western, midwest, like Kentucky or Tennessee, than in Florida or Maine. So we really aren't clear the exact trip that he took, what his exact path was. Um, Of course, he wasn't like mapping it out as he was going along, but you can kind of make some guesses based on the things that he says he saw. He talks about a beast twice the size of a horse with tusks that's an enemies to the horse. And that's interesting, but he also seems to have seen horses north of Florida, which could either mean that horses were domesticated already by indigenous people before Europeans arrived, which is something that historians didn't think existed or was a thing, or it could show just how quickly the horse population spread once it became wild. One of the most kind of wild claims is that he said he saw elephants in North America. Since Ingram probably had never seen an elephant before in his life, and he only knew that they were very big animals, he might have seen a bison in the distance and assumed that it was an elephant. Or maybe he made it up to please some of the people back in England who were invested in the idea of England colonizing North America. 
Ingram and his friends thought that they would come across European settlements along the coast, but they didn't. They were actually out of contact with other people for a year, much longer than they'd expected to be. They had thought they would come across other European settlements because even though England wouldn't make official attempts to colonize for another decade, there were already privateers visiting the area pretty regularly. And the French and the Spanish had been there for most of the century, and the coast had been on maps since the 1530s. In 1582, Walsingham conducted his interview with Ingram. It was about 13 years after his journey had taken place. And the account was actually published in Richard Hakelite's Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation in 1589. Self-plug, I did an episode on Richard Hakelite couple of years ago, I'll add it to the show notes, which we will put at, let's say, englandcast.com slash Ingram, englandcast.com slash Ingram. But the story was actually removed from the second edition of Hakalite's Principal Navigations, which was in 1598. Apparently, Hakalite thought that it lacked credibility, though it's unclear whether he found Ingram's claims of fantastic creatures to be unbelievable or the inland regions were still uncharted and he might not have had the means to disprove them. It's more likely that Hakalite's campaign for the colonization of North America had hardened by the time of the second edition. With the French colonizing the North and the Spanish in the South, the English risked being squeezed out and there was this urgency to establish colonies. Hakalite was interested in building the rational case for imperial expansion based on facts rather than speculation. Also having been included in the first edition was John Mandeville's Fanciful Travels and Ingram, and neither of those would have aligned with what Hakalite wanted, which was a a very practical, pragmatic approach to justifying colonization. Also, Hakalite probably didn't necessarily trust the word of a sailor like Ingram, who was illiterate and, you know, couldn't always distinguish fact from fiction. Someone else who was interested in Ingram, you could play like six degrees of Kevin Bacon with this, is John D. I should make a six degrees of John D game because I love John D. Anyway, D was, of course, Elizabeth's principal astrologer, one of her leading advisors. He also had the largest library in England, um, and he was trying to construct the intellectual framework for colonizing North America, and he wanted to meet Ingram in 1582. So D was actually trying to create this sort of moral justification, whereas Hakalite wanted to focus on the practical side and how it was going to benefit England. D, while he wasn't busy inventing a language to communicate with angels and writing about the merits of wife swapping, he, I love John D. I really do. I love him. I love him so very much. He is a man after my own intelligent yet slightly goofy heart. Anyway, he tried to trace Elizabeth's ancestry all the way back to King Arthur and justify that as giving her the unquestioned right to rule the new world. Because apparently, King Arthur sailed to America and conquered it. There was also a claim that the Welsh prince Madoc claimed to have sailed to America in the 12th century and lived there for several years. Arthur was a Welsh king. So it was argued that Elizabeth, as his descendant and through Madoc, had the rights to North America. On November 1st, 1582, Ingram actually had an audience with Dee, and Dee recorded this visit in his diary, but he didn't record the conversation, which is frustrating. 
But he was probably interested in knowing whether Ingram had heard any Welsh during his conversations with the indigenous people. Even having heard just a few words would have sufficed. Because Hakalite decided to remove Ingram's story from the second edition of Principal Navigations, it pretty much ensured that his story would be erased from the historical record. And then when it was occasionally found, the fact that he says he saw elephants in America made sure nobody took it seriously. But there are enough plausible statements in his account scattered amongst all the kind of wild stuff to suggest that the three men actually really did cross North America in 1569. What matters today is not whether they were the first Europeans to accomplish this feat, but the value of their account. If the journey took place, Ingram left one of the earliest accounts of indigenous societies along the North Atlantic Corridor. Among his repeated assertions were the presence of large, settled communities, similar to what Cartier described in Montreal, present-day Montreal, in 1535. If these communities existed, these large communities existed in the 1560s, but not in the early 17th century when the French and English explorers began charting the interior, it's more evidence of the havoc and destruction of European diseases. Ingram also did leave one lasting legacy. The report says, There is another kind of fowl in that country which haunteth the rivers unto the islands. They are of the shape of a goose, but their wings have hollow feathers and cannot fly. They have white heads, and therefore the countrymen call them penguins. According to the etymology of the word penguin, it was initially used to refer to the ox found in the northern hemisphere rather than penguins in the south. He might have been the first known person to suggest the word's origin came from a term used by indigenous North Americans that sounded like the Welsh word for whitehead penguin. This was because the now extinct great auk was easily recognizable by the white spot on his head. So there, of course, is the Welsh to please John D. See, it all goes full circle, you guys. Everything is related. Everything is just tied together. But for now, we're going to stop because you really need to read the book. It's by Dean Snow. It's called The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram. You can get a link to buy it at the show notes at englandcast.com slash ingram, englandcast.com slash ingram. And then hop into the Tudor Learning Circle, tutorlearningcircle.com to discuss this and all other things Tudor. And remember to learn more about TudorCon and reserve your spot for September 8th through 10th at englandcast.com slash TudorCon. And I will speak with you very soon. Have a great couple of weeks. Bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrick, that soul is Sam Lee's on sea. Men's cool maiden of me.